When it was almost time for the Passover celebration, Jesus went to Jerusalem. He went to the temple and went into the outer courts. This is where the Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish, were allowed to go if they were interested in learning about God. They couldn't go into the temple, but in the outer courts, they could go and pray and see if God was real or not. Since God wants everyone to know him and trust him, these courts are pretty important for people like you and me. So, Jesus went into the courtyard and looked around, and it was full of animals. There's cattle, sheep, birds, and people are selling them like it's the county fair or something. Now, just imagine, you bring the required sacrificial animal all the way from your hometown to Jerusalem to the temple, and then the priest says, unacceptable, you need to buy one here at a much higher price. It's required, right? So what are you going to do? There were also men with tables set up over here running a currency exchange for profits because the annual temple tax had to be paid with special temple coins. Regular people, poor people, being charged just to celebrate God's goodness. And this was happening right there in the Gentile courts of God's temple. Jesus was so incredibly angry. He grabbed some cords and he kind of twisted them together into a whip. He started swinging it around, chasing all the animals out of there. It was pretty intense. It was pretty much complete chaos. The animals are making their animal noises. People are shouting. Guys are jumping out of the way. Then he went over to the bankers and he knocked over their tables so that their coins went flying, rolling all over the place. And he said, how dare you? Turn my father's house into a marketplace. It was funny. The people there didn't stop him, but when he was done, they wanted to know how he had the authority to do that. They wanted some kind of miraculous sign to prove. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They didn't get what he was saying at all. I mean, they started saying, this temple took years to build. How will you raise it in three days? That sort of thing. But later, his disciples realized what he meant. And he was talking about his body, about how he was going to be resurrected after he was killed. When that happened later, when he was crucified and then came back to life on the third day, his disciples remembered what he had said and they believed. Good morning. Happy Easter. It's good to see you all here. Glad you're here to worship with us today. Um, right now, you know, it's, a, it's an election year, and so we're, we're hoping for a president who's going to fix some things. It's the way it goes every four years here in America. We've got things that need to be fixed, and we're hoping we find the right guy to fix them. Um, on a much deeper level, the entire nation of Israel had been searching for centuries for a king who would come and deliver them and establish a kingdom that would be ultimately good for them. This, this king had been prophesied about. We saw in the video for 1,500 years, over a span of 1,500 years, there were prophecies that um, the prophets of the Old Testament would, would give and and that, that pointed toward this Savior, someone who would come and fix things at a very deep level, not just a, not just a political 
Savior, but one who would come to fix us from the inside out. This king was called the Messiah, became known as the Messiah. And what we're going to do is look at how Jesus matched the fingerprint, the thumbprint for the Messiah that was prophesied about all these years over the next few weeks. In this message series, we're digging in. We're going to look at four scenes from the life of Jesus Christ recorded in the biography that was written by John, one of his disciples. There were four biographies written in the Bible uh, about him that are in the Bible, included in it now. Um, And uh, this one was written, they were all written for different reasons, for different purposes. This one was written specifically so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, people would believe that he is who he says he was. So we're going to dig in. And in our own search, this is what we do today, isn't it? We do what the nation of Israel is doing. We're looking for the truth, the person that we can count on. We're trying to find the God who will bring our lives together, who will make it good for us, who will make sense of what's going on. And so that's what we're going to do. Just look at four snapshots over the next few weeks of these scenes from the life of Jesus that tell us different things about him. Today, we're going to look at a scene from John 2. In John 1, uh, Jesus had called his first disciples, and um, as, as he called them, one of, the, one of the guys that decided to follow him, they had known him, they'd known about him, they began trying to check him out, and in the back of their minds, they're thinking, is this, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to come and bring the kingdom and, 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 and help us to really have the life that we've wanted to have. So this is in the back of these disciples' minds. A couple guys decide to follow him. He calls them to follow him, and they do. And then Andrew says in John 1.41, it says, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. So he believed they'd found the Messiah. They'd found this promised king that they'd been looking for for centuries. And they were doing what we do, looking for the truth that will give ultimate meaning and purpose to life. So we're going to dig in over these next few weeks and look at these scenes. And from the scenes, from the stories, the scenes of Christ's life, which are actually pieces of history, we're going to pull out of there some key things about his character and about his identity. How we know his identity, and what we can learn about his character from that. I I really wanted to call this message series CSI Jerusalem, mainly because I just thought that was a cool title. (laughs) My my problem with that, and you can tell, I, I, I couldn't let it go to the point where I had to mention it right now. Okay, I couldn't. But, um... It really didn't fit what we're doing because I think I've actually never seen a CSI. But um, isn't what they do? They start with the crime. They begin to piece all the evidence together and they go back and find who did the crime. Well, that's not what we're really doing here. So I couldn't call this series CSI Jerusalem as bad as I wanted to. Um, Because what we're doing is there was a crime. The crime was committed against Jesus Christ, an innocent person. He was crucified for no reason. That was the crime, but he was the victim. So what we're doing is we're looking at some scenes from his life that are pieces of history, and we're trying to put together his identity, the identity of the victim. 
So it's sort of like CSI Jerusalem, but not, not exactly. Um, so let's move on. Let's look at the first scene. This is the, the first scene we're going to look at is the first cleansing of the temple. And I remember when I was growing up, I grew up in a Christian home and I, I went to Sunday school. And I remember getting to this story in Sunday school and thinking, wow, that's a different kind of Jesus. I mean, he, he, it's the same Jesus, but wow, I didn't, I wouldn't expect that from him. But there's some very good reasons that he did what he did. In John 2, 13 through 16, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? You know, the disciples had just signed on to follow Christ. They're they're trying to piece together who he is, what he's like. He's he's representing God. So they're trying to figure out about what what's that mean about God. And can you imagine the impression this left on the minds of the disciples? He goes into the temple and cleans house like he owns the place. And I'm sure that that he did this twice. He did it at the beginning, both at the beginning and the end of his ministry. He was trying to make a point that I'm I'm sure the disciples hung on to. Very, very important thing. But they're watching and putting this together, trying to figure out what he's like, trying to learn about his character. And so we're going to really walk with them for a few weeks. And this is how you come to know Christ. You begin the search and they're. There, he is a figure in history. You know, we had the video with all the different attitudes and ideas about Jesus. But he is a historical figure that you can you can investigate. And as you begin to search, then the pieces begin to come together. Things come to mind. God works in your heart and he and he helps you to confirm whether or not he is who he says he is. And so. That's what we're going to be trying to do, and that's what we want to help you with. If you're investigating Christianity, if you're trying to figure out if Jesus is who he he said he was, or maybe you're not, hopefully today might raise your curiosity level to the point where you begin to search, that you begin to look and check out who he was, what he said, and verify some of the things that he claimed. Um, Anyway, Jesus' actions in the temple would make sense to the common people of his day. They don't make sense to us. We're not quite sure just on a cursory reading of what was going on there. They would make, in fact, they, it not only made sense to the common people, but they were, they had probably been looking for someone to do exactly what he did for a long time. Somebody needs to straighten this mess. This is horrible what's going on in the temple. Somebody needs to come and straighten this out. And so Jesus did. He came in to do that. So let's look at what was wrong. What made Jesus so angry? First of all, God's reputation was at stake. The temple was the place you went to worship God. The priests who were running this system of money changers and selling of animals, they represented God. And so what was going on in the courts of the Gentiles was was affecting the way people viewed God himself. His reputation was being severely damaged 
by what was going on. The first problem is that the business of the temple was going on right in the middle of the court of Gentiles. And this is a place, as Ben was telling us in, in his reading or explanation, this is a place just outside the temple where people who weren't Jewish could come to find out about God. And can you imagine trying to pray and ask questions in the middle of the mooing and the dirty mess? The, you know, the sheep are going, bah, you know, you say, dear God, bah, you know, you got you got all this going on. I, I can't even carry on a conversation in the middle of a, a noisy restaurant anymore. And, and, and they're trying to find out about God. This, this was really a, a bad scene that was going on. What you find out is this is very important to God that there's a place where people can come to get to know him. God has a heart for everyone. And he wants them to have a place. And since this was going on, Jesus, being God, understand, understood how it affected the heart of God. He was grieved by the craziness that was going on in a place where people should be able to get to know him. He wants people to have access to learn about him in a safe place where they can hear and understand and they're not distracted by what's going on. That's, that's what we try to do here. The second travesty that was going on is that people were being cheated in the name of religion. Um, God, God hates this, by the way. Jesus showed us that God hates this. If you've had any dealings with someone who has used you or taken advantage of you in the name of religion, you, you may be reeling from that. You can know this. God is going to deal with that. Either in time, many times he deals with it in time, right here now in, in, in our history. But if not, he is going to deal with it when he wraps up history. He is going to make things right. And so we can count on him. To do that, but what was going on? The the Jews, as they're referred to in this passage, the religious leaders, they were using the people and their devotion to God for their own advantage. God despises that. It's interesting. Right at this time in the in the season of the year that this happened, uh, it was Passover. Every Jewish household was going through a process of cleansing where they were thinking through their relationship to God, the way they deal with the people around them. They were confessing their sin to God. They were, they were going through this process of cleansing. And Jesus goes to the temple and this, this extortion and robbery is going on in the very house of God. That probably started out of convenience um, you know the, the the money changing and the selling of the animals when when you came to worship God at the time you needed to sacrifice animals so it's probably sort of like just a, a convenient way to provide for the people probably started like that sort of like when you go to SeaWorld and your child wants to feed the dolphins you pay the ten dollars for the three or four fish and you feed the dolphins you know, and, and you you do that. You could probably get the same three or four fish for 50 cents at the bait shop. But you're willing to do it because, hey, you're right here. It's right here. It's convenient. They've got you. They probably wouldn't let me bring the fish in to feed the dolphins. That's a no-no. 
And you think, well, it's just busy. We're on vacation. We're enjoying this. We're taking a day off. Well, I don't care. I'll spend whatever. The problem with, with that, that's understandable. The problem with this is this, this is worship. This is not a business. This is not entertainment. This is the worship of the living God here. And these people were very, very poor. And so they would come, they would bring their animals for sacrifice, and the law says they have to be without blemish. Now, the priests have an extra motive to declare them unclean. Uh, they're, they're, they're defective. Because now they have to go buy them in the temple court at an outrageous price, at a completely inflated price. The exchange fee on the coins, you had to offer your offering, your your money offering, in a temple coin. The exchange fee was often 50% more than the face value of the coin. So Jesus had good reason. You can see the corruption and you can understand why he was so angry. And he stepped in, he did something about it. So what we learn about Jesus through his anger is that his anger reveals his true character. We've, we find out something about someone. We, I, I was in on an interview a couple weeks ago, and one of the guys doing helping with the interview asked a really good question of the guy. What, what makes you mad? Because if you find out what makes somebody mad, angry, you find out what's really important to them. And so we learn something very important about Jesus here. Because he got so angry. And uh, we learned that purity, truth, integrity is very important to him. But let's, let's back up a little bit. As, as the disciples are watching this, they're trying to put the pieces together about him. As they see this happen, as he takes action to make things right in the, um, in the temple, they remember something. John 2.17 says, his disciples remembered that it is written. Zeal for your house will consume me. As they're watching this take place, a messianic prophecy comes to mind. There were 300 of those. You probably saw it on the screen. 300 of those from the Old Testament, more than 300. This is one of them. It's from Psalm 69. It's Psalm 69.9. It is a well-known messianic psalm, which is the prophecies that foretold the coming king who's going to come make things right and make things good for the people who follow him. Well, messianic prophecies are important because they're so specific that they provide a thumbprint, fingerprint-like evidence of the identity of the coming Savior. So as you begin to do your investigation, as you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, you can look back at those and match up what happened in his life in order to do some part of the investigation. So that comes to mind. The disciples, remember, they're putting the pieces together. The disciples also learn that Jesus is going to make things right. He is not going to just passively stand by and tolerate injustice. He is going to be proactive, and he is going to make it right. He's going to do right, and he's going to make it right. So that's something else we learn about him. Jesus values purity, integrity, honesty, purity, in the way that things are done, righteousness, pure righteousness. So we can trust him. Here's another related prophecy from the Old Testament about the, the, the Messiah. Malachi 3, 1 through 3 says, See, 
I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. The Levites were the the priests who were representing God to the people at the temple that Jesus went in and cleaned house on. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. This, this is very important to God. It's obviously important to Jesus. Absolute purity. And since God is absolutely pure, since Jesus values purity and he is pure himself, we can trust him. We know that he will do right and he will make things right. And when you're entering into a relationship, you're signing a deal of some kind, maybe. If you could know that the person was purely committed to righteousness and truth and honesty, how would that change the way that you relate to them? Well, you you could relax. You could trust that what they were telling you is real and right. That's how it is with God. That's how it is with Jesus. We, We can trust him. The second thing we learn is that his followers can expect him to demand purity himself. He is, if you decide to follow Christ, he is going to clean your house. <laughs> he is going to make things right in you. That's what he's going to be working to do. Uh, in one place in the New Testament, our bodies are compared to the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're a temple ourselves. And so Jesus comes in and he begins to show us things. And He loves us and he accepts us just like we are. So as we learn these things about ourselves, we fall back on that, on his love and acceptance. But at the same time, he's going to help us to change. That's one of the fascinating things about Jesus. I'm sure the disciples are they're watching the scene in the temple and then they're they're watching Jesus as he relates to all kinds of people that were considered lowlifes in the day. Actually, the religious leaders. The Levites, they, they looked down on him. They criticized him because he hung out with all kinds of sinners, they called them. Um, murderers, prostitutes, swindlers, liars, alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, cynics, snobs, religious hypocrites. It didn't, it didn't matter to Jesus what was in your past or what you were maybe currently doing as long as you were real and willing to admit you're wrong. He would accept you just like you are. That's the paradox. He cleans the house in the temple of the hypocrites. But at the same time, he, he's willing to, to relate to all the other folks. He accepts you right where you are. But what you've got to know is he accepts you. And then he wants to begin to help clean house. He wants to see some changes made in your own heart. He wants this kind of purity, the same kind he's committed to in you yourself, in the way that you relate to your family. You don't lie or deceive or hold things back in the way that you do your work or business. He wants the same kind of purity. And what happens is, as he works this in us and through us, we become more trustworthy. Our relationships get more and more solid. People can trust us. We can relate. We can enjoy one another. And we can move on from there because that lays a foundation 
for a relationship like nothing else. A second thing we gather from this scene is that Jesus' resurrection reveals his true identity. John 2, 18 through 22 says, verse 18 particularly, let's stop there for a second. Then the Jews, the leaders, demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? I think this is an honest question. I mean, he comes in, he acts like the owner of the place, and he cleans house. They want to know why he had the right, why he thought he had the right to do that. It's like somebody walking into a bank who was dealing underhandedly with people, claiming to be the owner's son, and just turning things over. And, you know, so the, the bank manager is wanting to know, why, why do you think you have the right to do this? That's, that's actually an honest question. The thing about Jesus is, he was the owner's son, the owner of the temple that, that people gathered to worship. They came to worship God. He, he was the God. He was God's son. And the, the thing is, he gave them an answer as to how they're going to know that he is who he said he is, and, and that's, that's how we check out his identity. This is the core sign that Jesus is who he said he was. In the book of John, there are several signs that he gives. This, this is the main one. This is, this is it. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, this, this threw people off. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? See, what they're thinking is, this is Herod's temple. They had been working on it for 46 years. It wasn't finished. They had 30 more years to go before it would be completed. So in their minds, they're thinking, wow, you're, wow, how is that going to happen? This has taken us a long time. But the temple he had spoken of was his body, it says in verse 21. After he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. There are two responses to Jesus' claims. First one is that of the religious leaders. They reacted in disbelief. Jesus' death and resurrection are the ultimate sign of his true identity. And Jesus made statements like this throughout his ministry. So that takes some of the options about what you conclude about Christ away. Like, in other words, you can't you can't decide that he's a good man or a good teacher because he was teaching that he was God. I am God here. I am, I am God's son. So if he was a good teacher, he wouldn't be lying like that. He was either delusional, a liar, or the Lord that he claimed to be. So you have to start your search from that vantage point. The second thing is the second response to Jesus' claim is that the disciples continued their search and believed. We, we want to help you either start your search or continue your search here at CIV. If you don't know the Lord, uh, we, we'd like to help you in your investigation. We have some seminars that are coming up that you may want to check out. Mark McAlpine is going to go through more of the details than I have the time to go through on the reasons for belief that Jesus really did raise from the dead and then some other evidence that points to his true identity. If you already do follow Christ, I, I encourage you to, you know, some of you are like, I don't need to dig into all those details. And I understand that because I don't, I don't need to either. But boy, as I have, as I dig in to the details, it fortifies my faith. It really strengthens my faith. So I'd encourage you to dig in and begin to search. 
In a moment, I'm going to show you a video clip that shows some of the evidence that you can uncover, give you a taste of what, what we'll be looking at in those seminars and then through the rest of the, the, the message series. But before I do that, I'd like to pray and ask the band to come up while I pray. Father, we, we come to you and we thank you for your purity, for your love and kindness and compassion, and yet your holiness and purity and justice and righteousness. Even in the midst of all that, even though we've turned to go our own way, you, you've been very patient with us, Lord, long-suffering. And I am so grateful that that is true, that is the case, that we can trust you, that we can relate to you and find the, the, the freedom to become who you've made us to be as we turn to you and commit our life to follow you. Lord, thank you for what you've done. Pray for your help in sorting through these things that we really would uh, be able to be strengthened in our faith or be encouraged to consider faith in Christ through this. We ask for your help in all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.